0: Hello, GHT Squad, and welcome back to another episode of The Gut Honest Truth. I am your host, Katie Mora, registered dietitian and functional medicine practitioner. Health and wellness doesn't need to be full of constant confusion and contradictions. Here at Gut Honest Truth, we bring our listeners the science and best practices from well known experts in their fields. From our mouth to your ears, this is The Gut Honest Truth. <music> Hello, hello. You are about to hear GHT's newest Spitfire round. What is a Spitfire round one may ask? Well, every few weeks at GHT, we ask our listeners to submit their most burning healthcare questions to us. So you asked and we're about to answer. If you're hoping to have a question featured in an upcoming episode of the Gut Honest Truth, don't hesitate to use our social media platforms or contact form on our website, guthonesttruth.com and submit your question today. We hope you guys enjoy. Welcome back, everyone. We are very excited to enter 2023 with y'all. And today we're going to start out hot with a spitfire round, which I feel like we haven't done in a while.
1: We haven't. And it's our favorite because there's so much
0: of our personality that gets to answer these questions. Lovely. Should we just dive right in? Yeah. Do we need to have any
1: announcements? Well, I think one of the important announcements is to talk about... um, Brain. Okay. To talk about what we just emailed all of our people about that
0: we do have a gut health symposium coming up in March. Yes. So we know a lot of our listeners are actually healthcare workers, coaches, nutritionists, dietitians. We emailed everybody um, that we are very excited to announce that on March 18th of 2023, we are going to be hosting an all-day all-encompassing gut health training. All are welcome. It is definitely directed towards practitioners, but anyone is welcome to join us and you're going to learn basically my brain. No, you're going to learn everything you need to know about how to how wrong, how to interpret labs in detail, not generically, how to treat each condition. The whole shebang will be there. Nutrition. Yeah. And yep. is-
1: Asking the right questions, et cetera. And I will say from my point of view, having been under your wing for about an hour, an hour, a year and a half. It's, it's an invaluable course. If anybody is just starting or has been in this for a while, it's one of those things that will literally take you five steps past where you thought you could get instantaneously. So, and plus you get to hang out with us for like eight hours. What, what is better? So more to come, but if you're listening to this, that is coming.
0: And if you're a nutritionist dietitian, you are, um, going to be able to get seven continuing ed hours after completion of the course. This is approved by the commission of dietetics. So definitely jump on it. If you need some continuing ed or just some refreshers, but if you are trying to really ramp up your business or go out on your own or specialize in the gut, this is your, this should be your jam. So if you have questions, use our contact form on our website and we're happy to get in touch with you.
1: Also on the website is a layout of the lectures. So. Absolutely. Take a look at that. Come back to us. We're excited about it. We will probably be here talking about it for the next two months. We will be here. So all of that aside, just me talking about the cool things that GHT has coming on. Let's get into our spitfire. Okay. I think this question is wrong. So I'm going to say it and then I'm going to change it. Mm -hmm. What do you do for the, Oh, maybe it isn't. Let's see. What do you do for TSH? That is subclinical hyperthyroid.
0: What do you do? Okay. Well, a lot of, has always a lot of questions. I need it to, this is why you work with someone. A lot of backup questions. So hyperthyroidism for anybody listening, right? So the, the thyroid is kind of overactive. We usually talk about in our practice it being underactive and we more so specialize there versus hyperthyroidism. I definitely recommend working with an endocrinologist pretty closely. Um, it, it depends. What is the sub Like how subclinical are we talking? What parts are overactive? Are all the hormones high? Are you struggling with Graves disease, which is the autoimmune condition for hyperthyroidism? Usually that's the case. So I would want to know some of that. I would also want to know, are you on any medications, especially just thyroid medication that you might be being over-prescribed? A lot of people, even that are hypothyroidism, fluctuate and go hypo hyper. Um, you know, the the thyroid doesn't always make the same amount of hormone day to day. So it's definitely possible. Um, if this is new for you, I'd also want to know if you were taking certain supplements before testing that caused a false elevation of your hormones on your lab result, but they're not truly elevated. So there's a lot that goes into it. So medications and then, right. So hyperthyroidism, any autoimmunity, we still want to think about all the things that we regularly talk about in the podcast from, are there gut infections? Are there food sensitivities that are kind of triggering through, you know, leaky gut and molecular mimicry issues, toxins, right? There's a whole slew of reasons. We really still want molds that we want to look into. Feel free to add Kira. Well, per usual, when we talk about the
1: thyroid, I always want people to know that there is a bigger picture. And we use the iceberg situation as far as like, when you look at a piece of ice floating, you're just seeing a piece of ice. You're not looking at the depth of how deep that ice really goes. And so when we're looking at anything thyroid related, make sure you're looking at all the markers and make sure that if something's a little wonky, you're retesting it because we've seen multiple times, somebody ourselves even come up with some different ranges, let's say, and it, we retest it. And it's like, oh, okay. It's actually not what it looked like. And so sometimes we can have an immediate response to, oh gosh, you know, I have subclinical or I have hypothyroidism or I have whatever the case is. And it was just a, a fluke test. I mean, as specific as testing is, it's still, it still has a degree of, you know, standard deviation. So one retest to make sure you're testing the whole thyroid and getting a bigger picture at, to look at what's really going on, not just saying, oh gosh, TSH is off. Everything is, you know off accordingly. Yeah. It's a loaded question there. It is. And and you know, something that I don't think is talked about often enough in this space is that thyroid the thyroid is complicated. I think the best, you know, the all of the education out there is very much so it's this or it's this and it's it's typically not as with anything in the body. So just remember that anything that involves hormones is a little bit more complicated than just labeling it as one or the other based on You know, one marker. So, okay, I love this question. How to heal dairy intolerance? Is it possible? Anything's possible.
0: Oh, God. (laughs) anything, you can do it. Um, it really, really depends. This is another kind of like multifaceted question, right? So yep. dairy intolerance, what part of dairy are we talking about? Like, have you, you know, almost backtrack and is figure out, which I recommend doing with a, you know, licensed nutritionist or dietitian is figuring out what part of dairy and or all of dairy is peeving off the body, right? Is it lactose? Are you lactose intolerant? Is it the whey? is it the casein? Is it all the proteins? Um, Is it certain casein like that? That stuff is definitely worth figuring out. Most people cannot tolerate lactose. The degree is variable, right? So some people could have like a piece of cheese and go to the bathroom for like a week. And some people could have a block of cheese one day and they'll be fine, maybe slightly like slower motility. So it's like, it really depends on what you're experiencing, the severity, what part of the dairy, um, that being said, so that's like step one is figuring that whole piece out. It may not be possible, right? If you genetically don't have the ability to break down in the small intestine, at, you know, if your brush border is lacking, or if you have celiac and you're lacking some brush border and therefore lactose intolerant. Probably not going to happen. If you have some overgrowths like SIBO, right? So small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, one of the biggest foods that basically feeds that bacteria and makes all the negative symptoms is going to be lactose, which is going to be the carbohydrate piece of dairy. So if you can clear the bacteria, you may be able to regain the tolerance of dairy, right? Yeah. Yeah. A couple of things. Before we even get into the depth of this
1: question, I want to reiterate that intolerances and allergies and sensitivities are all very different things. And so I just want that to be clear because we've had a lot of people come to us saying, oh, I'm allergic to, I mean, I've had people say I'm allergic to asparagus. And no, you're not. I don't think that's, did you see an allergist? No. Okay. So you're currently experiencing, you know, some discomfort with asparagus. Now it's okay. Is it SIBO? Is it whatever, whatever have you. Um, so firstly, there's a difference between those three. Secondly, part of what I wanted to kind of highlight and circle back to is the difference in the proteins, right? I think when people just say, I can't have dairy, they don't, they're not aware of the fact that it could be to your point, the lactose, it could be the way it could be the casein. And so differentiating between those is important. Now for the people that don't know how to do that, how would they go about that? Let's say somebody is trying to do a little bit of a self-experiment with, is it the way, is it the casein what's going on?
0: How would you recommend they walk through that? That's um, it can be challenging, which is why I definitely recommend working with someone. But essentially, the food, right? Whatever food we're talking about. So in this instance, it's all dairy. We would need to remove that from the diet for a minimum of twenty three days because the half life of the you know the antigens and antibodies that we're creating to foods is going to be that long at minimum. It can take much longer. So depending how severe it is and how much or how quickly you receive like get relief from removal. You could have to do this for many months, up to like six months, but let's just pretend you remove the food fully and not like, Oh, I'm have it here and there. I've basically removed it. Cause that will just basically reinitiate an immune response to the food. So one month out of the system fully, then you have to, be, you, there's not necessarily a specific order in my opinion, but you have to go either with the two ways I do elimination diets, what you miss the most, like what is most important to your diet, right? If you're somebody who's like, I love butter, I don't know. I love butter and I don't really care about the rest. I would want to just know how you do with butter then first, right? Cause I just want to see, but you can basically compartmentalize them into just using like, let's say whey protein, like a very clean whey protein. If you want to figure out, do I have an issue with whey? If you want to figure out lactose, there's varying degrees of lactose in cheeses and dairy. So you can either say, let me get, um, like a very low lactose and start there and build up, or you can go very specifically high. I don't know if you start with have a specific order you do with people. I've done both ways. Yeah, it depends. Um, casein's a little bit harder, but you can use like the different A1 milks and stuff and see how you do with different types of casein. Uh, but I definitely recommend doing three, like three introductions of food versus Okay. Dairy okay. Yeah. So in summary. Do an elimination diet, however long that
1: needs to be for you. Reintroduce them specifically over our typical time period and then figure it out if it's whey, if it's casein, if it's lactose. Um, Okay.
0: Okay. So just- if you guys have any questions, go into hard cheeses, go into soft cheeses, and then like throw in like milk and ice cream if that's something you want to see how you do with. So- yeah.
1: And just kind of to, to bring it back, we have had people that have healed through, you know, SIBO or what have you in the gut and have been able to tolerate dairy. So there is the possibility. Um, I just, I hate the kind of notion of all dairy is bad. I, we both kind of stand on this. It's not entirely true. It's why is, uh, why are you reacting to that and what degree and how much, um, so just knowing that potentially it's possible, there just might be some healing that needs to take place first. Next question. How do low AMH levels, how low AMH levels are related to leaky gut? Firstly, ma'am, can we define what
0: AMH is? Anti-malarian hormone. So I assume this individual is a female that is, I mean, we both make it males and females, but that a female that is trying to procreate, if you will. So AMH is going to play a role basically in the development of a baby's sex organs while they're in your belly. Um, <clears throat> low AMH. So when we get a test, we don't want to see low AMH. So that's going to mean that we have fewer eggs, we have a lower ovarian reserve, right? It doesn't necessarily connect to fertility. So I'm assuming fertility, it does, but it, it more so tells us like the time frame, the shortness of the window of possibly getting pregnant um, and how many eggs we have left versus necessarily saying, are you fertile or infertile? If that makes sense. Um so sh- shorter window, which we don't like to hear in our fertility world. Um There's a lot of connections. I don't necessarily know if I would jump so far. And if I, whoever submitted this, if you have a research article that you want to send my way, go ahead. But I don't necessarily think there's, I have found strong research in terms of leaky gut and AMH levels. There's research on gut health and AMH levels. So there's, um, a lot of, I don't want to say a lot, but there's a handful of articles I have found that connect to, you know, dysbiosis and different overgrowth and imbalances and in, in female guts being related to lower ovarian reserve. There's been, um, <clears throat> different things with, you know, IBD that has been researched and higher levels of this, you know, infertility going on and low AMH levels. Um, there's definitely, I would assume a big connection between the progesterone levels and the AMH that is going on. And that is going to be, potentially or partially due to gut imbalances, right? And estrogen levels and all of that. So I haven't found direct research and and I can keep looking on AMH levels and leaky gut. Leaky gut just may be a side effect of that dysbiosis, of that IBD that is then, which is the real cause, if you will, or, or condition before the cause um, that is contributing to the infertility issue. Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the answer is, potentially, but maybe not directly. And then it just kind of reminds me and circles back to gut health overall being an important factor in hormone levels. Um, So I, you know, something I think we do for good reason in functional medicine is get really specific, but then we get so specific that we're all really worried about one or two things where if we zoom out, it's like, okay, well, my gut health is impacting my hormones. So let's, let's work with that.
0: Yep. Yep. It's, it's a good question. And we do a lot with fertility in our practice and obviously the gut, but way more involved than that. Um, like Kara was just alluding to and diving into it. So I wouldn't get so hung up on the fact of leaky gut. Um, and if somebody one time told you, you have that going on, I would want to know why do you have leaky gut in the first place and what else hormones and what can we do to support that?
1: Yeah. Okay. And so we actually have a couple more questions about fertility here at the bottom. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go straight there. Um, Now this one's kind of broad, but as we're on the topic, how does gut health impact fertility?
0: How doesn't it impact fertility guys? It impacts it. Anyways, I'm just going to throw some out and we can dive in if you want. So poor gut health, right? We talk, if you follow us, we talk about this a lot, but a just talk about digestion and absorption, right? If we're not digesting, absorb absorbing the nutrients, the fats, the macronutrients, the micronutrients to actually give life form to that, you know, fetus, we're going to not be able to carry the pregnancy through. It's going to be really hard. Um, that yeah. malabsorption happens for a lot of females and it happens, especially as a side effect of things like SIBO and SIFO. And if we can't absorb fat, we're like missing the most important macronutrient for, you know, neural development. So that's definitely a problem. So that's very simple, right? We're poorly digesting due to poor gut health or poor intake of food. That's a problem. Then there's the concept which we talk about a lot of your TH1 and TH2 immune system balance, which we don't need to get too sciency here. But essentially, the body can only recognize you know one infection at a time. One infection potentially being you know implantation of a fetus into the body is going to be seen as almost like a parasite, right? Um, and then if we actually have a parasite, no, if we actually have like a viral infection or something else going on, the body gets out of whack and tries to fight it off. And in many cases, if we aren't controlling all these other factors that are throwing the immune system, our body might attack, for lack of better phrasing, the fetus and have a miscarriage. So that is definitely, if we have these gut infections we're not taking care of, we can develop our risk of miscarriage. Um the gut and the thyroid are like biggest chicken or egg thing i can think of in healthcare yeah. and if we are having poor gut health we're going to potentially develop poor hormonal health poor thyroid health which then we can increase again our risk for infertility miscarriage what have you um what other yeah. right- um i think those are the two big ones i
1: just it we've talked about this before on podcast but also kind of off podcast as far as both of us having a really soft spot for people that are going through infertility issues and have tried and tried and tried and haven't addressed outside of, oh, it must be progesterone or it must be estrogen or you must need birth control or, you know, the whole kind of dance that happens with infertility haven't addressed thyroid health, hasn't addressed gut health. And so the issue being, you know, there's a little bit of a sensitive timeline with stuff like that, as far as you work I'm not going to go into the gut and start to treat stuff and start to work on things. If you're actively going through, you know, implantations and things like that. So just being in a place where it's a clear communication on what might need to happen in order for you to successfully get pregnant. Um, so finding somebody that kind of works with all of that. So There's
0: yeah, a lot of stuff almost to kind of tie it together for that. You could be doing to support fertility before you even get to a place where someone's testing your AMH. Yeah. Yeah. We looked at a lot that can be done and have really good outcomes for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um,
1: on the wave of fertility, how would high prolactin impact fertility?
0: Just hydrate over here. Um, so high prolactin can essentially just interfere with the production of right estrogen progesterone. Um, it can change or stop you from ovulating, which we know ovulation is a necessity to fertility in babies. So um that's kind of simplicity, you know, the simplicity of how it works. But why don't you talk about prolactin a little bit? Let's talk about because <laughs> I think we're jumping, whoever asks us we're jumping for all the listeners as to like what is even throw, right? So, what's throwing the prolactin to me is more important than really even.
1: Yeah, well, if we think about what prolactin is in general, it's typically something that's higher in breastfeeding women, which basically pauses your menstrual cycle and pauses the ability to get pregnant again. So, if we think about high prolactin in general, that's why it would be causing, or could be a causative factor in not being able to get pregnant, right? Prolactin is literally saying, Hey body, no, no pregnancy right now. Now the issue being if it's high because you're breastfeeding, that's normal, right? It's normal because it happens when the baby latches. And so you, it's a whole process. We don't have to get into the dweebiness of it, but if you are just kind of walking around and you have high prolactin to your point, what the heck is going on? And we did a podcast with Carrie Jones, last year where we talked in depth with this, but the first thing my brain thinks of is stress because of the way that it impacts prolactin. So I don't, I honestly don't remember off the top of my head what the other ones are. Cause that in my brain,
0: it's just, Fire stress. at you. I haven't. Yeah. It. Fire it. Go. So very, very high prolactin levels, not to like start there. You might want to think about like pituitary tumor, mm-hmm. very high levels, mild, like moderate levels, not that elevated, slightly off where your doctor's not concerned, but they're like, let's just monitor it. You got to think about everything from like low dopamine, low GABA, high histamines, H2 receptor medications, which a lot of people are on SSRIs, which a lot of people are on low B6, high cortisol, hypothyroidism, dopamine antagonists. There's a lot, this is a lengthy list. So there's, which is good when there's a lengthy list. It's actually good because there's a lot of different things that yeah. you rule out. Right. So a lot of medications, which a lot yeah. are- So if they're elevated, first of all, ask, am I on this medication? Is that the the concern? Talk to your doctor. Um, But if it is related to sex hormones being low, if it's related to histamine issues, you know, nutrients like B6, those are things that you can take care of.
1: Yeah. And also, again, with any lab marker, check it again because I have personally gone in to test my prolactin and been shocked. I actually, personal story, went through the whole situation, had an MRI for a pituitary tumor, everything, retested a couple weeks later, and it was down like 50. So just keep in mind that it might just be something you need to retest.
0: Okay, ooh, what would be your first step in treating Giardia? That's a good question. Um, okay. Well, I guess the first thing as a practitioner I want to know is how symptomatic are you, if at all, right? Mm-hmm. Because with Giardia, you could be doing a lot of the bowel movements and that would not be ideal. And if you ideal and if you're very sensitive to the situation, uh, anti, a, you know, anti-parasitics might be the best answer there. Um, if it showed up on a GI map or a Genova comprehensive stool test and it's low levels and you're not symptomatic and it's there, I, A, as the practitioner, I want to see the rest of that test. Cause I want to see what else is going on that you have this. So Giardia is, you know, very pathogenic meaning bad and the right situation cause obviously symptoms or condition or disease states. I want to know many things. I want to know how your immune system function is in your gut, because if that's low, I need to support that because not only is that part of the reason you probably got this infection but you're going to have a hard time clearing this infection potentially. Uh, anytime you have a parasite, you want to think about low stomach acid. So it, whether or not that's the first step, but like, I'm kind of giving you all the thought processes. Cause why not? That might not be the first step because the parasites already there, right? Like I want to make your stomach acid be good. So you don't keep getting parasites, but I got to get rid of the, the parasite period. So I'd rather start with supporting things. Like if you took a test and your secretory IGA is low, let's figure that why that's low and figure that out where you're going to have a hard time and continuing to treat. If you have something like H pylori and that's involved in the situation, like we're going to want to treat that pop before you treat Jardia, unless you're super symptomatic. Yep. Otherwise you're, this is going to keep happening. Right. Yeah which yep. is a loaded question. I'm not going to get into right now, but you need to see the bigger picture basically is like, who, what are your symptoms? Why do you have it? Did you get it from pets? It's very common in pets. Do you have dogs that have been treated for giardia? I would absolutely get your dogs checked um, and make sure everybody's being treated so that you're not passing this around more. So often yeah. my patients with giardia, other pets have a long history of having GRD.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Plus just kind of the elephant in the
1: room of everybody probably has some sort of parasite. Now with this, how do I say this nicely? Availability of information on social media. There's this, I've really tried. Um, There's this notion that everybody needs to go in and start just absolutely treating for parasites. Firstly, might not be necessary. Might not be. Secondly, you can't just jump to parasites. To Katie's point, What else in the body is kind of setting you up? Yeah. Setting you up for that to be one, a problem two a continued problem. So why did we get it? What's going on with the immune system, everything else, as far as why are you not able to kind of work with it? Are you symptomatic? So just kind of keep in mind that some of the information that flutters around in the, in the atmosphere is well-intended. Um, But not always as aggressive as it needs to be. Not everybody needs to go be doing Paragard every single day. Do I think that people could benefit from being more intentional? Sure. But I don't think you need to be taking anti-parasitic herbs all day, every day. Just... Uh,
0: and i also want to say so like something that like a concept we'll be talking about in our paper to practice gut health symposium for for anybody listening is is the fact of like testing right so you come to me you do this test or or maybe you came from a private previous practice and i see low levels of grd on your test etc and you're not symptomatic i'm going to treat the patient and not the lab right so do i see bigger issues going on that i need to address like we just talked about maybe Do I want to retest? Have you done treatment, et cetera, first? But things pass through the gut all the time. It doesn't mean there's taking place and starting an infection. So if there's low levels, it could just be that it is literally passing on through the gut and we caught it at that moment on the stool test. It's a very sensitive test. So we see, not to in our practice, we just, uh, we get a lot of people who've been to a lot of different providers and aren't getting anywhere. And they come to us for like the third or fourth opinion. Um, and a lot of times they've been through someone trying to just aggressively treat every single thing on the, you know, their test and not repeating or whatever. And that is treating a lab and not a patient. You need,
1: yeah. Oof, that's a, you're going to gain some real spice out of me because the, one of my biggest pet peeves is having people come to me with like, 12, 14 supplements at once for multiple months in a row. But firstly, no idea why they're taking which ones and what's the intention of those. And secondly, having not had any symptom changes in three to six months, still feeling pretty badly because nobody had a direct, okay, we're going to do this first. We're going to do that next. And instead just saying, oh God, there's H pylori, there's parasites. She has low, like, Or
0: they see all of it. Right. And they like took some course where it was like, this is how you treat SIBO. So let me do that for 12 weeks. And then they're like, but they also had a parasite. So now I have to 12 week treat a pair. And that's not how it works. You should be working with somebody that can intentionally be hitting multiple, you know, birds, one stone type of thing, but also keeping not crushing your gut into mind. So that's what we, we do, but that's um, why we made this course. Great for... question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You wanted probably a simple answer and I didn't give one. Um, yeah, it, it depends if you're, if you are having diarrhea and stomach pain and stuff, go see your doctor and get antipyrasidics. Like there's not a reason you can't do that. And I would support it. Just make sure you're treating anyone else in the household that might have it and your animals. So it doesn't keep happening. Um, but usually if it's like low levels and you're not consuming diarrhea, um, if you are, we might, put you on herbs right away to just kind of lower the levels while we fix other things. Absolutely. But if you are asymptomatic, not having symptoms, let's figure out what's going on, you know, while we kind of support that treatment.
1: Yep. Okay. Next Um, question. Best way to get rid of trapped wind. I love that. Um,
0: under rib cage, it's constant and painful. That doesn't sound good. Um, so anyone listening, wind, gas, gas, trapped gas, um, under the rib cage. So first of all, we're going to just, my brain can't do simplicity apparently. So we'll give you some tools for getting, getting rid of it, but figure out why you're having it. If it is constant, there is something going on that in your lifestyle or your gut constantly that is causing this. So best guess it's probably a food or, and, or you are poorly digesting your food or chewing your food regularly, or you're constantly eating under stress and not chewing well, something like that. Right. Or how's your gallbladder doing? How's your stomach acid doing? If it is constant, you need to be working with someone like, like our practitioners that got on a truth to figure out what is going on, how to remove it. So you aren't having this issue in the first place. Cause every other thing I'm going to tell you to do is a bandaid. Okay. Mm-hmm. Necessary bandaid. Cause you need relief, but a bandaid. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's something in the movement or motility. You can do something as simple as like in times of like very painful moments, get like a gas X that might be careful when and where you're taking that because <laughs> it's like a single very large gas bubble and you're going to have- full. Just
1: in a really important meeting.
0: <laughs> I will talk from personal experience. Then- <laughs> I'll be careful. Be intentional, be, intentional. be home alone. <laughs> we're going to get that trap gas out of the body, right? You're having a hard time putting all these little bubbles into a big bubble to get it out. Um, there's things like gas relief tea from traditional medicinals, right? There's actually, if you just Google like, um, like gut health, yoga, gas relieving yoga, things like yoga with Adrian will come up with different moves that actually help move things like down dog. And you're going to be able to pass gas potentially a bit more easily. Um, Also body work can like very much be done. So like somebody who does visceral massage on your organs, or if something is not in alignment, you could go see a chiropractor. There's like, we have to find out why it's happening, but you also just might want to, while you're figuring that out, work with either a chiro or work with um, a massage therapist that does visceral massage, all that stuff. Um, If you're gassy all the time and you maybe are also constipated all the time, I would just recommend doing something like supporting the bowel movements. If it's magnesium citrate every night, maybe fiber blends, but also maybe fiber blends is increasing your gas. So that's independent, you know, dependent on that individual, but increasing your fluids, increasing your magnesium, increasing your veggies that are well-cooked to move things along will help you if you are constipated.
1: Yeah. And, and also the just intentionality behind eating stress, making sure you're sitting down to eat. Um, not taking too much in honestly, sometimes also drinking water while eating can cause a little bit of gas and bloating. So separating those and ginger tea, you could sit on ginger tea throughout the day and just see if that makes a difference for you. Yeah. So cover your bases and, and then look deeper at, okay, well, is it stomach acid? Is it or,
0: to me, I'm like, this is abnormal. If you are yeah. having painful, constant gas, try the band-aids for relief but there's something bigger going on and you need to address it and it's probably f- relatively easily fixable so yeah work with someone please please please
1: yeah um i had a question for you and it absolutely just escaped it'll come back okay next question what could be the cause of skunky smelling stool is our okay to take long term if it helps
0: i like the defining word okay um Foul smelling stool, we're going to go with, because I put the thing skunky over and over will get me. So foul smelling stool, um, many reasons why you could have pretty much putrid smelling stools is constipation, right? If things are moving slowly through the body, what, there's a million reasons you could be constipated, which I'm not going to go into all of it. But if it's moving slowly, it allows more time for fermentation from bacteria, yeast, all of that, causing an Odor that you don't want. Um, <clears throat> so if you're constipated, we got to fix the constipation. If you don't know why you're constipated, get a practitioner that can help you. Um to food sensitivity. You are eating something that or allergy even, but that is not working for your body. And it is your body is quickly trying to get rid of it, and possibly some of the gastric juices and different things are coming along with it, causing some foulness. Um, so food like a food you're eating. Similarly, we can just talk about the concept of like poorly digesting and absorbing foods again, um, or you have something like SIBO or hydrogen sulfide SIBO, which is causing you to have like more sulfurous smelling stool, a lot of excess gas, etc. So, some kind of infection, basically parasites infection in the gut. Am I missing any? Um. Well,
1: I also think that a little bit of gas and sometimes even foul smelling gas is not anything to have like huge concern about. It's normal. Sometimes your body's just processing things, especially if you're a person that eats a lot of broccoli or certain veggies, like it's just, it's just going to happen. Um, but also bringing attention to the fact that if there is a motility issue, that's structural, right. It might not be an infection necessarily, or something you need to go in with herbs and, and work on. It might just be, okay, well, how do we support motility better for you? So, um, the brain doesn't need to jump straight to, you know, something bad is happening in there, but it does, it does require, okay, well, what could be the cause? Just like everything else we've talked about so far. The second half of the question is, is an okay to take long term if it helps?
0: I just want to say, and to follow up of what you're saying is like, just generally, like all of these things, like we see it just because we have a lot of patients with high anxiety that come to us because of these issues and nobody ever addressing their issues or concerns before, you know, but it is normal to occasionally have diarrhea or loose stool. It's normal to be constipated occasionally. It's normal to have all these things. It's abnormal going to our previous person to say, I have this regularly and it's causing pain or distress, or I, I notice it in my day to day living. Like you're expected to pass gas. That is part of being a human being. And you're expected to pass odd, different smelling gas and poop, right? It's normal. It's yeah. If it's causing distress, if somebody else is really noticing it and commenting, like if there's something going on at a deeper level and it's, Happening all the time, weekly. There's a problem. Okay. Um, Atrantil. Atrantil is great. If you have not listened to our, I think it's like two years ago now, podcast with the um, creator and founder of Atrantil, Dr. Ken Brown, I would definitely listen to it. He's awesome. Um, He's a gastroenterologist. And so, yes, it is okay to take long term. Um, It's really high in antioxidants. It's really high in polyphenols. It can really help just. Actually, maintain general like gut wellness, if you will. Um, on the opposite side of the spectrum, I would want to know why we're having to take this all the time, right? Like, you can, but like, just saying high, it's high in antioxidants, it's high in polyphenols, like, is that lacking in your diet, right? Are you lacking in your intake that you're having to supplement? So, yes, you can take things that they help you, but I want to know why we shouldn't have to take things, right? Obviously, somebody. Yeah. Dr. Ken Brown, but we create a product. where if it's safe, we're going to like it's. It's a business. Like we're going to say, you yeah. Um, if if it's you know effective and safe, but um, we should be backing up and saying, why are we having to do that?
1: Yeah, and with that, it also could just be it feels good, and it's the um, what is that psychological term? I don't remember. But now you're keeping it in your brain as something that is absolutely helping. So you're holding on to kind of like a crutch, but not really. That's not how I wanted to say that. But it's um. It's something you have mentally assigned with feeling better. So from the physical side, is it, you know, polyphenol necessity, et cetera, but also is it just, do you just mentally feel better taking it type of situation?
0: And I will say that people who are struggling with IBS type of issues, gut health, they often are low in things like polyphenols and Moving, somebody at some point has told them to remove these foods that are high in polyphenols and antioxidants because they're contributing to their SIBO. They're contributing to their gut problems. So now, yeah. Right. So I'm not saying it's this, I don't know anything about this person, but if, if um, that is the cause, like back up and work with someone on slowly introducing those foods back in and then yeah. and slowly pulling the supplement out if possible. Yeah.
1: Okay antibiotics or herbs to treat SIBO. I'm so hesitant. I don't know which one to use.
0: My, oh my, that's a loaded one. Um, I don't know you and I'm not a provider, so I'm not going to speak to what you should do unless you want to come do a consultation. Happy to get my eyes on it. That being said, um, it depends the severity. It depends what else is going on in the case. Because remember SIBO is a symptom of something much, much larger going on, right? It's the condition we're diagnosed with, but it's really a symptom. Um, so it also depends on the type, right? There's three types. There's hydrogen, there's methane, and there's hydrogen sulfide. You can have one or all at the same time. Um, so what? what is possibly being prescribed to you. We can have great success with um, herbs. I would, not to kind of cut myself off here, but I would read my um, SIBO ebook. I really would, because I talk about actually the pros and cons of all of these and the types of medications and the success rates and all these things. So if you came to me and said, I have a really high methane SIBO, should I take the antibiotics? Very, very debatable, right? Like neomycin and rifaximin is what would probably be prescribed to you. Neomycin has some side effects I would want you to know about before you committed to that. I have seen it be a game changer for people. And I've also seen it mess some people's situations up. Um, If you have really high hydrogen, someone's recommending Rifaximin, I'd probably support it because I think it's really good medication. It's really usually very successful, but you want to intentionally and properly use it in the right time of treatment. You don't want to just take it and keep taking it without reducing all of the risk factors as to why you have this in the first place, right? Um, yeah. There's a lot. I think. Question. Yeah. I also want
1: to just piggyback off that with anything, whether you're using herbs or antibiotics, but we've seen this happen with antibiotics more often than not. People will have two or three rounds of rifaxmin and never retest. And so you don't know if you actually got rid of it. And you also, at that point, you never treated why you got the SIBO in the first place. Yeah. Maybe you cleared it temporarily or you didn't because you wouldn't know because you didn't retest. But you're not getting to the root cause of, okay, well, is it, uh, is it the thyroid that caused this? Is it low stomach acid? How did we get here? So as with anything, I feel like that's the theme of this, this kind of podcast is retests, make sure you're double checking if something did or didn't work, if it did or didn't support you and move forward with that.
0: I also want to just say, but just because the the integrative functional holistic world demonizes the living crap out of antibiotics doesn't mean they're not appropriate. They yeah. are for many, many people with IBS or yeah. for example, pretty much sticks in your gut and doesn't cause it's like 95 to 99% sticks in the gut doesn't cause systemic issues for people like other um, antibiotics. Well, it's actually been shown to improve the microbiome for many people. So like as providers and just anybody who is doing research or knowledge, like we need to do a better job at explaining mechanisms of action behind things and and side effects, pros, cons, because people just hear, oh, an antibiotic, like I don't want to do it. Like I tell my patients all the time, if they're being prescribed it, let's intentionally use it Mm -hmm. at the right situation. But like, yeah, get like in many cases, I'm like, yes, take it because you're probably going to move this along as long as we're making sure everything else is taken care of alongside or prior. But we have scared people into antibiotic use and yeah. appropriate situations for antibiotics. Welcome to GHT, where we don't demonize any
1: part of medicine, if it's going to be helpful for the person.
0: And I just want to say, I know I don't know this person, but if you have SIBO and someone just like ran a breath test or a diagnosed you off a of stool test, find a new provider to yep. If they only did a SIBO test and not a stool test, let's get a stool test on you before you take those antibiotics. Cause I want to know what else is going on. Cause like I said before, like, do you have H pylori? Do you have a low immune system? Let's correct those before you jump into the antibiotics. Otherwise those antibiotics probably aren't going to work. So highly recommend getting another potentially set of eyes on your condition going on.
1: Yeah. And also to run with that one. Um, if you are being treated for anything, particularly SIBO, and nobody's taking a look at your thyroid and supporting the thyroid as well, if necessary, that is something to also dig into. So it's not something we want to just like push any sort of supplementation. in if we're not making sure that the metabolism is working, motility is moving forward, et cetera, and not going to help anything there. Okay. After gut healing, when should a person retest if old symptoms start to creep up again?
0: Well, it depends. So I usually for them, depending on what it is, I don't test people more than every four to six months in my, unless somebody really wants to, even then, I'm like, why, why are we doing this yeah. situation? But it's going to take four to six months, not necessarily of like killing something, but of like correcting some stuff. Cause if you just test after you've taken the Rifaximin, like there's going to be other chaos and it's going to look like other problems are going on. Um, if you're having symptoms, it depends what it is, right? Like, let's say you took a test and all we ever found was H. pylori. Like, okay, let's just retest H. pylori. And, or if we already know it's that we and we know you well, we might just say, let's do another round of treatment. But if it's coming back, what are you not correcting in your lifestyle and day to day that it's coming back? So like for H. pylori example, that can be spread through saliva. So is your spouse have it, right? And they were never treated. That's probably the issue. So if I just treat you again, it's just going to keep happening. So we need to get the family unit on board. If um, it's stress-related, if it's chewing, like we have to back up and figure out and do some of those like baseline things before we stress out about the testing. If it's something that recurs for a lot of people, like SIBO, let's let's test, let's see where it's at before we just keep treating, because maybe that, well, it's almost going back to Kara your point of like, we should have tested after the treatment to make sure we're not having that regrowth or like what else is, is going on for someone or is there other testing we should do before we even do that test again, if you will. But- if you have the means to do it and it's not too soon or close to treatment, retest, see what you're working with because you, the, this, I'm kind of like getting all over the place, but I'm not at the same time. So many people will be like, oh, we're treating this with you. you know, you're know, you fixing my gut in whatever capacity. Like, will I get this again? Yes, you may, right? The whole point is to like imp- get rid of your infections, rebalance your gut so that like, if you do get exposed to H. pylori or parasite, like your body can handle it better and, and move along and kind of process it it's absolutely possible. You're going to live a long life, like to get multiple recurrences of infections. That is absolutely, should be honestly expected. We're trying to to minimize it though. But do you see that a lot? I see that all the time. And I'm like, I can't guarantee you're never going to get H. pylori again like that. Yeah. Realistic.
1: I mean, it's a, it's are it's the same thing with like getting a cold or anything of that nature. Your body is going to be exposed to things. You're not going to live in a bubble. That's not what's going to happen. So, our job is to figure out how to support you and your body and your immune system so that you can fight it off or that so it's not as aggressive the next time or whatever the case is. But you're a human, your body is fighting things all the time, things that we usually don't know about just because we have a little bit more attention in, okay, well, these things are researched. Doesn't mean it's not going through stuff. Okay.
0: We got sidetracked on that question, but sorry. (laughs) Test if you need to or if you know the seven reasons this happened in the first place too. let's circle back and make sure we're go- yeah. you know, going through each one of those before we have to jump into more treatment. If you will. Yeah. Too. That's a good point too. Cause oftentimes it's a,
1: it's like a lifestyle situation that somebody has reverted back to that. Okay. Well, is it because you're not, well, I don't know. There's a million different things, but addressing those things. Uh, okay. Possible effects of gut issues from coffee.
0: I'm going to let you take this one. Cause this is your, this is your dream, your dream.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, aside from the caffeine that could be causing a little bit of some bowel movements. Um, it depends. I mean, if you're having a coffee that isn't being tested for mold, that could be an impact, not necessarily gut specifically, but that could be impacting you. Um, I don't, even know where to go with that question I have 10 things that are happening in my brain but
0: it's you know okay so what's it read me the question one more time uh possible effects of gut issues from coffee oddly worded for my brain okay I know um, that's why I was like uh, I think they're trying to ask like can you get gut issues from coffee but it's yeah it's not really worded right okay um I don't I just don't stress about this. I mean, obviously, I don't know. There's so many things to stress about. Like if you are a coffee lover, like do your best to minimize the garbage. That's a part of your coffee from the quality to how you're actually making the coffee, you know, within your means, like from like a plastic drip cup to French press or to a pour over to just a better quality, less plastic involved, uh, drip coffee like there's so many ways are just like how you're actually holding in a cup like are you always going to starbucks and getting a plastic lid or plastic cup? like or are you making it home putting it in a, a you know actual yeah so i would focus more on that stuff and just like cleaning up what i call like coffee hygiene um kira you know talks at ght a lot about not having your coffee before you've eaten something Obviously I support that but I also, just like don't show, like it, you don't have to be like, I cannot possibly have this cup of coffee today because I have yet to figure out breakfast like the stress around that is worse. it yeah. can it can, it's a, it can basically be an irritant to the gut. It's why GIS tell you not to have it if you're having reflux, if you're having less it can basically increase the inflammation response especially if you haven't eaten and coated the stomach at all it can cause some problems, right um therefore just know that like if you're somebody who is sensitive, if you're someone who's like, oh God, it's running right through me, like eat something, let it <laughs> absorb some of it, coat the gut yeah. that before you get crazy into it. But I don't think you're going to, you're not going to develop an infection from drinking. No, that's right. It's not creating an infection. It might just be irritating you. And, or if you're somebody who already has a fast motility, like almost too fast where you're poorly absorbing, like, and that's speeding that along, that's not good, right? We need to slow down the motility
1: yeah but what you're not gonna get from these two italians is don't drink coffee we will just tell you make sure you do your best to be as intentional as possible with your coffee hygiene as katie said whether it be from the way you're making your coffee or what coffee beans you're getting etc but we're not we are not the two to don't, say I'm not coffee'
0: questions too it's like its the hygiene do your best enjoy it sip it slowly don't have a pot of coffee like enjoy your one or yeah. two. Right. Like all of that. It's
1: that's really it. just intentionality. Yeah. That's our theme. I'm gonna,
0: yeah, I'm gonna leave it. <laughs> where, yeah, I I it's not going to cause a gut no. exacerbate one, if you will.
1: Yeah. We'll go yeah. with that. But also just like to finish that. If you know you're the type of person that is just sensitive to coffee just
0: try a different coffee. Like, don't just keep Starbucks, like pesticide ridden. I, and I'm not hating on Starbucks because Kira and I will go to Starbucks. Like our, like she probably had it today. We're not hating on it. I have one right now. And it was, it was a one-time thing. We do not judge any of this. We also indulge, but we are saying like, if you are actually sensitive, like it doesn't affect me like that, then maybe try something like the, um, ease coffee from purity, which is supposed to be a a little bit more gentle on the gut, right? Or try something like low acid coffee that is going to be a little less harsh for many people on the gut.
1: Okay. How did we end up talking about coffee more than anything else? Next question. Thoughts on
0: methylene blue. Uh, So I will just get, this will be a short and sweet, sorry, if you will. So I do not prescribe medication. This is a prescribed We'll quote unquote medication. It's a dye. Um, so I me, meaning I don't prescribe it so that I don't have wild and vast amounts of like, uh, experience with this to really have a thought process on it, if you will. Um, methylene blue. So it's essentially right. Like a, a stain that is used that they have found and use for different conditions, like inability to like transport your oxygen around in the bloodstream. Um, I believe it's used for urinary tract infections, which the reason it would be used for urinary tract infections, the same reason that the you know, integrated functional world has started to use it. So I don't know every detail of like how it came about, but I believe it's a Dr. Horowitz with, um, has done a lot with this, which is he's like the guru of Lyme disease and co-infections. And they have found that it is as effective or more effective than antibiotics especially when it comes to biofilms, which is a huge problem in the Lyme population of putting people on it. He uses it in conjunction with other things, but putting people on it for, especially like Bartonella and Lyme disease. Um, But it's also, I believe some people are trying to use it in the parasite world, same reason, biofilms. I don't know enough of the research. It's newer, right? Like the research and the studies to say, yes, you should absolutely go do it. I think if you're struggling with Lyme, if you're struggling with Bartonella, like- and you're working with somebody who is well-equipped in this and uses a really good compounding pharmacist, um, probably worth a shot because the the things we have to treat those conditions aren't where they need to be. Um, and it's a really big problem. So I think if you're finding success, I know people that have had success taking it, um, go ahead. But I have not, I do not prescribe it. I have not taken it myself to really speak. I feel like as good as I want to, as well as I want to on this, if you will but it's being used. Do I think it needs to be a thing that's used for parasites? Probably not. Okay. And okay. Well, maybe I'll be whistling another tune, but I think every just because something's new, and we don't know. Yeah.
1: yeah. I was going to say, give it, give it a couple of years, at least Time. two and three to figure out if it's being effective or not. Okay. How to do an elimination diet on your own. Read GHT eBooks.
0: Read the books. We walk through it. We have a whole guide, which is no longer on the site. I can make it on the site if people need this. But like, first of all, I would obviously say, don't do it on your own because there's a lot of room for error, um, and confusion. And that is how we get ourselves into a position where we're like now eliminating 30 foods and stressed out and feel like we should never put them back in. Um, yeah. But read our books and we talk about this a lot. Or you can do like a consultation or two with one of us and we can walk you through it, give you all of our protocols and handouts on that. And you can kind of do the rest on your own if you want. Yeah. But yeah. Let's leave very, it there. It's intentional 2023. It's a very intentional process. Um, yeah. Some people should not be doing it, especially alone, especially with mm-hmm. eating disorders or restriction. Yeah. 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 Especially remembering the intention.
1: Haha. <laughs> of the elimination diet is to yes, uncover, but also give space for healing. So in the process of potentially, you know, temporarily eliminating that food, what is it that we need to go in and support? That's where a lot of the um, practitioner side would come in handy. All right, ma'am. Last question. What are antibodies and can you reduce them? Let's go. Oh, antibodies to what? I think, I think this is probably what happens in at least what I've seen a lot is thyroid antibodies. People have been, you know, to some physician and said, you know, you have Hashimoto's, you're never going to be able to reduce your antibodies. You guys can't see my face. I had a, I had a face. Um, (laughs) yeah. So I think that's what the question was kind of more geared towards as far as what we typically see, I think.
0: Okay. So, um, When we talk about, first of all, if you are struggling with this, we post about this a lot. We'll be posting about this a lot this month because it is Thyroid Awareness Month and we have a new Blog out that is free. Read it. We talk about this. And I also have an ebook on all about hypothyroidism. So if you definitely need more support, jump on that. But so essentially, when we're talking about antibody response, right? So it's just like immune recognition to something in the body, basically the thyroid tissue and hormones. We are talking about the thyroid globulin antibody and the like the um, TPO or the thyroid peroxidase. So one or both or none can be elevated for people when they are elevated. A, like we talked about before, get them rechecked if it's the first time you have found that they're elevated. And sure, I personally have had that experience where my TJAB was elevated very, very slightly and never has been in my life. Repeated completely back to normal. Um, so retest two, it is talking about an immune response, right? An immune response to your thyroid, which We're suggesting possible um, development of autoimmunity, which is where your own immune system is attacking some part of your body. And in this case, your thyroid tissue, which we do not want, right? Um, So basically we call it, there's a fire going on in your thyroid. How do we put it out? There are many, many, many reasons why this could be happening. And it depends which antibody is elevated, right? It could be anything from food sensitivities, all the things we've been talking about today, like infections in the gut, infections with... um, viral infections from like herpes to hepatitis C. There's lots of things, EBV, like that we want to make sure aren't a problem that could be hijacking, increasing your antibodies, basically putting your immune system into chaos and attacking your own organ, which is not good. Did I answer the question? Have I
1: not? Black and white, can you reduce your antibodies? There you go. That's the question. That is the answer. The end. See you guys next month.
0: Yes, you can. We see it every day. So that's a good, yeah, it's a good question. Definitely work with someone. And if somebody refuses to continue checking, also just kind of a side note, a thing that I very much like to do and teach anyone in our practice is, if we are working on a factor, unless somebody's like very committed, which I love those people that will do like all the things to get to where they need to be. But if they're like, I, gluten, right? I wanna see if gluten's affecting my antibodies, like we can very specifically just do one variable at a time, test your antibodies, yeah. test them again to see if they're reducing with the treatment so that you know what is really actually the causal, causal, causal factor. <laughs> It's the end of the t- day guys, uh, the causative factor there. So that is something that you could work with your provider, but first of all, find a provider that will keep testing your antibodies.
1: Yeah. And also if you have a provider that says it's impossible to reduce your antibodies, please go get a second opinion. That is me very politely saying, go see someone else.
0: Yes. Thank you. Come again. <laughs> good question. These are some involved questions. I, I know, up. I know
1: people are really digging into our brains. So exciting.
0: I'll learn more about the, um, methylene blue blue. I know, I know people that are doing, but it's too, too new. And I'm not working in a practice where that is something as of right now that is happening. Um, but I've only really heard positive results and things of it, if you will, especially in the Lyme world. Okay. So research 2023 other things we can do that. We know that, you know, the first, so yeah, there you have it. If you want to learn more or have more support, as always, we are accepting new patients this January. Um, So you can easily head to guthonestruth.com and head to work with us and do all the scheduling right from there. And if you have questions about your current condition, please reach out to us and we're happy to best guide you.